0: Podcast for America is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. Right now, use our promo code, America, for this special offer. Go to Stamps.com and sign up for a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes up to $55 in free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter offer code, America. This episode of Podcast for America is brought to you by The Great Courses. The Great Courses offers engaging video and audio lectures from top professors and experts in their fields. The Great Courses created a special limited time offer for Podcast for America listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including The Skeptic's Guide to American History, at up to 80% off the original price. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com America. That's thegreatcourses.com slash America. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello, and welcome to Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the human feeding frenzy of a presidential campaign cycle. I'm Alex Wagner, host of MSNBC's Now with Alex Wagner, and I'm speaking to you from the Panoply studios in rainy New York City. Sitting next to me and filling in for Mark Glebovich today is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's The Gist, which we like to think of as our cooler older sister podcast on the <laughs> Panoply Network.
2: I've never been called anyone's older sister. It our, feels really good.
1: Our cooler older sister, Mike Pesca. I wish that was
0: true in life. I'll say it's that. It's so true.
2: Mike. I'll teach you how to smoke and everything.
0: Mike Pesca is our Denise. The Mike guy is our Denise.
2: I'm going yeah. away to a fictitious college that we all know is based on. <laughs> and a very you're going to jo-
1: join that traditionally black uh, sorority.
2: Mm-hmm. And Dwayne Wayne will teach me the ways of the world. You do
1: have those flip top <laughs> sunglasses. Okay. And in our DuPont Circle studios in Washington is our Rudy? New York Magazine contributing <laughs> editor, Annie Lowry. Hi, Annie. Hey, guys.
2: Come on. She's so raven. <laughs> is
1: that Rudy? Oh. I, I'm I I consider myself Theo. Okay. Here is what we've got on our agenda for today. First, voting. It's not who you love, it's who you fear. We'll look at the latest scary research on party loyalty. Then, everyone is asking Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton why they are running for president. At this point, is that question even fair? And finally, last but certainly not least, Donald Trump announced on Tuesday that he would seek the Republican nomination for president. Do we believe him? And if we do... How badly will he muck up the Republican field? Of course, we'll end the show with a highly divisive segment we call If I Were In Charge. Let's get going. First off, hate is gonna hate, vote is gonna vote. New research from two political scientists at Emory University reveals a scary fact about political partisanship. The researchers found that party loyalty is less about who you like and more about who you don't like. As someone named Ezra Klein wrote for Vox, you're more likely to vote Democratic if you hate Republicans than if you love Democrats and vice versa. Annie, setting aside the wisdom of a dubious character named Ezra Klein, what do you think about this data and what do you think this means as far as party
0: strategy? This is really, really interesting research if have conveyed to us through this dubious character. Um, <laughs> if you start to think about the tremendous degree of polarization that we've seen in Congress and how that's been reflected in public life and also in part driven by public life, right? There's this weird feedback loop where Congress gets more polarized and then it polarizes people and whatever. Then it starts to explain a lot about people, I think. And it starts actually to kind of explain a lot about the political effects effects that we see, right? It makes sense that people are sort of voting out of a defiance and a fear. You can see politicians kind of stoking this, right? If you vote for the other side, then all of a sudden they're going to raise your taxes or destroy your social security, or we're going to have people streaming in across the border. It makes a lot of sense to me, right? Because it's it's a very base impulse fear, right? To keep what you have before getting anything else.
1: So Mike, do you think it's always been like this? We just happen to have a bifurcation in media and potentially geography that makes it sort of more public.
2: I think not. I think a couple things. One, it probably wasn't the case before the great ideological sorting so that Republicans have become synonymous with conservative. And that, of course, wasn't the case as recently as, you know, the 1970s. And now a lot of empirical data shows that especially the Republicans in Congress really, really are to the right, much more radicalized than they used to be. But I also think it's probably a characteristic of a pretty well-functioning democracy. So if we were in a place like, I don't know, India, there's a lot of hope for Modi because you really need a guy like that. You need to imbue him with hope because life is so very bad but in America, I think a lot of people just look for their government not to screw things up too badly and when it comes to that, it's more of a fear of the other Who's going to screw it up? The other party's going to screw it up. We have any number of people on our side that we say, yes, maybe I like this guy better than that guy a little bit but the big thing is, or even the reason I like my candidate so much is he will stand or she will stand in the way of that terrible agenda that's about to be implemented by the other side. And I don't think that's wrong. I think the two views, given how radicalized the party are, I think the two views that the parties have are deeply at odds. And I would say that a died in the wool Democrat would be is right to be very afraid of what Republicans want. And he died in the wool Republican. Like, they just know that Democrats will, you know, keep on taxing and spending and uh, allowing abortion. Yeah, but
1: okay, let me just in defense of. Well, there's been really interesting to your point, Mike, research showing how far right the Republican Party has swung. The Democratic Party has become much more of a clearinghouse for ideologies that wouldn't necessarily have been Democratic 20 or 30 years ago. The Democratic Party, the Democratic tent feels a lot bigger by virtue of the sort of rightward thrust of the Republican Party. And so I'm trying to get to the point (laughs) of what I'm saying. I guess I find it worrisome because I think... If the way that you motivate voters is through hate Mm -hmm. and fundamentally like negative, destructive feelings, it makes compromise that much harder. But it also turns off a whole subsection of people who don't feel particularly impassioned towards the other party, but who actually definitely have a stake in a functioning government. So that leads to sort of lower voter turnout, lower voter participation in democracy and a less functioning democracy on whole.
2: Well, it also seems to be a function of how we politic and negative campaigning yeah. makes you feel bad about everyone. So all the money in politics, well, that's a big problem. Why is that a problem? What does the money buy? Mostly ads. What do the ads say? Mostly the other guy's a jerk. Right. Therefore, well, we're where we they, are now. Right. Hate voting is a phenomenon, the driving phenomenon.
0: And I think that, that actually Mike's point about the sort of territory that people are fighting over getting smaller is really, really interesting. Because there, I think it's sort of an asymmetric phenomenon too, right? You talk to Democrats and they're like, with the passage of the affordable Care. Act, at least on domestic policy, certainly not on foreign policy, we kind of feel like our work is mostly done. There are some things that we want to do to shore up the family. But really, you know, the the project that we started with the Great Society and the creation of the safety net, you know, we, we basically got there where we wanted right, to. Right. We're there until it's torn us right. <laughs> Whereas it's interesting because Republicans have actually a lot more of a radical agenda. I'm not sure that they would actually pass, but at least that they they give credence to of dramatically reducing the size of government, of repealing these things and rolling them back. I'm a believer that given the opportunity, Republicans probably wouldn't do a lot of what they've said that they would do. But nevertheless, they really would, you know, make Medicaid much smaller, I think, and and do a lot of other things. They would actually be the party that, that sort of takes things away from people.
2: But you can make the case that the Democratic agenda is at least as stated more radical in terms of the number one issue that everyone's talking about, which is income inequality. And right. the Republicans won't do anything radical about that. In fact, they're probably just to Well, that depends on what it. you
1: think is radical. Like, like, you know, zeroing out capital gains taxes or putting the Bush tax cuts—I mean, fiscally, you—but the this- Republicans
2: aren't going to have any agenda uh, as regards uh, income inequality. The- their agenda is just what they always well, well, say, which is well, make but taxes is, okay. Lower. So,
1: but then is 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 lack of an agenda to combat what some people see as like sort of systemic failure in our democracy? Is that? More radical than having a plan. I mean, I guess it's just the way in which you frame it.
2: Yeah, but the Republicans in, on this issue stand on the side of inertia and not well, doing well, much. Well, I
1: just, I just think no. Well, I would disagree with that. I think the Republicans have a plan that exacerbates income inequality, and I think that isn't radical. the plan.
2: Just doing what we've been no, doing. No, it's so far. it's further
1: lowering taxes.
2: Yeah, if they can, I would. Well, but th- think th- it's just th- not th- if they can,
1: taxes. aside, yes, I think a okay, lot of people fair. argue that's more radical, and there's yeah. plenty of other. Agenda items that are proactive on the Republican side, including like, oh, I don't know, reproductive rights where they're actively, aggressively trying to change the landscape. But I mean, I feel like we're getting a little away from the hate thing. And I just, just (laughs) to get to, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is too touchy feely. But I think there's something bad about you know, hate (laughs) being a motivating factor to get people to participate in democracy. And for various reasons that I think we've already explored, but just fundamentally, that feels like not a good place for us to be in. And I also think I don't know how the hell to get us out of it. You know, and I work at MSNBC and a lot of people will say you're part of the problem. (laughs) We try and have Republicans on and have thoughtful conversations with them. Sometimes they get a little bit testy. Sometimes they don't. It's hard to do that, and it's ever more increasingly difficult to do that in the sort of media world that we live in.
2: Yeah, and I was just on uh, Real Time, a Bill right. Maher's show,
1: which is like, uh, like the sort of like Roman Colosseum version. Of, yeah, like, and
2: what they and I was fascinating to talk to the producers there because they have such a hard time getting conservatives on. Bill Maher's, you know, is a little bit across the border. At least he's maybe not always doctrinaire. But, you know, he's mostly liberal. In fact, he's sometimes much more liberal than even, you know, national prominent Democrats. It's just so hard to even have that conversation. Fox is not having the conversation. As I look at the Panoply Network, we're not chock-a-block with conservatives. So, yeah, maybe there's a reason for uh, hate voting is we don't even hear so much the best presented case of the other side.
0: Yeah, and and here I would worry about a certain sort of like self-fulfilling or self-perpetuating phenomenon in which you cast the other side as being evil that plays into what vote always think, but that just hardens their opinion, right? I think it's going to be a really hard thing to break out of. And I think it's it's part of, you know, you hear politicians say all the time that they just don't actually have the incentives to work across the aisle, that they get horribly punished for voting with the other side, especially in primaries, especially on the Republican side. I think this is all part of the same phenomenon, which is this growing polarization that has a lot of causes.
2: Yeah. Well, there was a candidate who proposed hope, but uh, the, quote, <laughs> the quote about him was- But we said, we stomped that,
1: that one yeah. out. Yeah. How's
2: how's that hopey-feely thing working out for you? Hopey-changey (laughs) stuff.
1: All right. Do you vote from a place of love or hate or fear?
0: Tell us. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like our podcast, Podcast for America. You want to listen to it, so you tap a button and voila, here we are. So why are you still dealing with your limited hours standing in line at the post office when you can get your postage on demand with stamps.com? use stamps.com to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. It's great for home use and it's great for small businesses. It's a fraction of the cost of a postage meter. Plus, unlike the post office, stamps.com never closes. Right now, use our promo code America for this special offer, a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes up to $55 in free postage. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter America. That's Stamps.com. Enter code America. Okay,
1: moving on to our next topic, oh, I ask why. A recent article from The New Statesman has the headline, Why Does Jeb Bush Want to be President? We've seen similar questions consistently asked of Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Mike, what I'm wondering is... Is this even a fair question to be asking at this point?
2: It seems like it's a fair question, right? It's a nice open-ended question, and it's one of the five W's. How does how get worked into the five W's? Silent
1: W in front of the A's. Right,
2: we just count from the back back forward with how. So it seems fair, but I don't have any question why Hillary Clinton's running for president. And the other people who, where you could supposedly answer that better, are either essentially one-issue candidates or more radical candidates. So we all know why Rand Paul's running for president, but that's because you know his agenda sticks out within that party. I would say that Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton are both really running for president for the similar reasons that everyone runs for president, you know, ambition and self regard, right? And
1: (laughs) And maybe a sense
2: that they're going to do something good for the country down the line. And and daddy issues. I mean, these are all, it's all a big... Family issues. It's It's all a big morass, right? So it is consistently Hillary's been pilloried by this. Oh, there is a rhyme jeb's been i frabbed by this. But I don't think think it's that fair. I understand why they're running. And what's the answer supposed to be? Is there, you know, a one sentence thesis statement? The answer is, I think, to take this country in the direction that we think it needs to go. And as relates to our last question, not to let the other guys ruin it.
1: Yeah, I think it's particularly asked of dynastic politicians. I'm reminded, of course, of Ted Kennedy's major colossal fuck up in 1980 when he couldn't answer the question himself. And I think in large part that was asked of him because he had a family. He had a brother that was president and a brother who was the attorney general and his father, etc., etc. And it's sort of like the expectation is you're doing this because it's expected of you. Mm -hmm. Why do you truly really want to run? That same goes for Jeb Bush. You're doing this because your father and brother were president. But why do you, Jeb, want to run? And of course, the same is true for Hillary. I guess I agree with you, Mike. I, I just feel like it's kind of irrelevant. Why does anybody want to run? And what do you really I mean, what you kind of want them to give you is some sort of nugget of impassioned wisdom yeah. about about th- this thing they're going to do that's different which of course is impossible <laughs> <laughs> a, for, I mean, it's a sort of impossible thing to ask of someone and certainly an impossible thing to believe in, given where we are in our democracy. And it's
2: not like they don't answer it. Hillary says fighting for everyday Americans. Right. Jeb says now recently to get 4% income growth. That's a fine answer for me.
0: Annie? <laughs> I feel like there's this way in which if you had a like a Veritas serum or something, right, like some potion that you made all of them drink and they gave you an actually authentic answer as to why they are running for president, every last one of them would be like, because I am a profoundly Insecure person who's desperate for external validation and like is I fighting think that's constantly. So I mean, constantly I think... <laughs> between a feeling of <laughs> extraordinary grandiosity and extraordinary self-loathing. Or at least this is my imagined answer. I don't think they're like all insecure. That. I think some of them have. Yeah, I mean, last they have incredible
1: <laughs> delusions of grandeur and yeah. a healthy sense of self-regard. And for one of
2: them, that's why they're running. Because one of them, it will eventually not be a delusion. That's yeah. it. I want to be the one. But, who, chances are, but when you ask them, I'm going to
0: make good on this. In reality, <laughs> they just give you this like pablum. Well, because I think we're on the wrong path and I know the right path or I whatever. I wish you had a Veritas there's no, serum. There's no question that if you were guaranteed to get a true, truthful answer, that you would get such a divergent response.
1: Well, well OK, let's play. Let's play podcast for a second. And <laughs> like, imagine what Jeb would say if he was given the Veritas serum, Mike, what would he say?
2: I've been working my whole life to establish myself as a serious person with good solutions. And I think that, A, my solutions are good for America. And, B, when I'm done, the whole Bush name will be totally rehabilitated. I,
1: I feel like some very healthy part of it is it kills me that my brother was president before me. And it kills me that he dragged our family name through the mud and I, I, Jon Snow, I'm <laughs> going to make it right. I'm not wishing Jeb Bush the outcome that Jon Snow apparently got. Annie, what do you think <laughs> Hillary would say? I think she would, I
0: think she would give like the Saturday Night Live answer, right? Because (laughs) it is mine. Because my entire life has been centered around trying to achieve this goal, or at least my life for, you know, however many decades at this point. Give it to me. I love it. The precious.
2: Because because it has been unfairly denied me for so many reasons.
0: Well, I
1: also think there is something (laughs) about I know what's right yeah. and I yeah. want to
2: do the right thing for the country. And she really right. does honestly want to be the first woman president. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really A 100%. Her. And, and not just for her, for And her. for, for the, yeah.
1: the for the country. Yeah. <laughs> How kind of yeah. her. Yeah.
2: And I really want to vote on this trade pact too, but I'm not going to tell you how. (laughs) That's why she's running.
1: Yeah. The Veritas serum would be like,
0: they got to stop fucking asking me about the TAA (laughs) and give me
1: this fucking presidency. I'm sorry to curse. So so wait,
0: Alex, if we gave the Veritas potion to like Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul, what would they say? For some
1: (laughs) reason, I ascribe Bernie, I give Bernie Sanders, I give him more of the benefit of the doubt that he truly believes. I mean, partly because he's so unapologetic and his political career has, I feel like, largely been uncompromised in terms of what his value set is, I Uh feel like this is a very literal extension of him wanting to take his ideas about what works for the country to the highest office in the land.
2: But we call people like Bernie Sanders and we used to call Rand Paul more consistently a true believer. But I think that's kind of unfair. Can't you be a moderate or centrist true believer? And part of your true belief is I I can't get every win, but we got to do the important things. I think most I think the vast majority of people in Congress of successful politicians are some version of a moderate true believer not well, not Ted But Cruz. maybe that's
1: because the extreme ideological like focus somehow seems more Pure, right? Like less diluted. So the centrists right. will have had to compromise. Therefore, aren't as focused in their in their ambition. Right, but, and
0: also because like Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders, if they were president, they would do, do things dramatically different. Right, like Bernie Sanders would want to turn us into Sweden, and Rand Paul would really, really honestly want to turn us into like where they shot Mad Max, right? Like out in the middle of the <laughs> desert or whatever, with like no government, or uh, maybe no just a inhabited. utopia. And the upper but you know Pacific it's Northwest. interesting because it, it kind of brings up you know and I hadn't thought about this but maybe it's actually harder to make the true believer case if you believe roughly what the people around you believe right in that case like the question then becomes okay well why you right See, and then, and then it defo- this defaults is, to this is
2: my theory with Hillary hey look she in, in the 90s she took all these stances that she doesn't as- ascribe to now and so we call that opportunistic or we call that shifting with the tides but I think she's a true believer and her belief is being practical like she's always wanted to do the she, practical thing you mean you thing. think
1: she genuinely supported what Clinton did to welfare and the criminal justice system and the financial service. I'm, d- I'm not trying to no, be- No, I do. I, 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 my eye, roll, a, my my eye think, roll was
2: more like, I actually do. I think for that time, that was the right solution for welfare, and it did need reforming, and now we're just using it to beat up on the myth of the welfare queen. Well,
1: okay, without getting into- But I think like, like
2: with something like gay marriage, back in 1992, it just was a, kind of on nobody except, you know, the maybe- Yeah, maybe, but DOMA
1: was 95, 96.
2: I know, but that was the practical thing. And it, they didn't know gay activists who really said, we really want to marry. And then when it became apparent they did, she did. I don't think she changed. I think, I'm I think I'm she give just you, realized I where she was
1: you, I think I'll agree with you on the, the some of the policy stuff. They genuinely thought they were trying to make a better, build a better mousetrap, if we can be so benign about it, e- even though it, I would argue, wreaked havoc <laughs> on various institutions. I think the social issue stuff is where the Clintons and and to the degree that we're talking Hillary
2: was part of the decision making process have been far more cowardly. Oh, I think I think of the death penalty absolutely. I really don't think. I don't know what Hillary's stance yeah, is when flying Bill went back, back. to see Ricky
1: what, Ricky Ray R- Rector, is that his it's name? Ray.
2: Someone yeah. middle name was definitely Ray. We know that. I
1: just think that was that was shameful pandering.
2: Yeah. And I would it would shock me if she was, you know, for everything she's always been, if she was actually pro-death penalty back then.
1: OK, well, we've gotten slightly far afield, but all the more reason to lasso it back in. Don't forget to let us know what you think about our podcast. You can tweet us at pod for America. Okie doke, the Teflon Don. Donald Trump announced Tuesday that he will be seeking the Republican nomination In addition to claiming that the rest of the world is sending America all of its problems and that Mexico is sending rapists over our borders, Trump declared in his announcement that he would build a great, great wall to keep us safe. Sounds like some other place in the world. The two questions I'm curious about are, one, is the Donald really, and I mean really running? And two, if he is, what kind of havoc is he going to wreak for the rest of the Republican field? Annie, you can answer either one.
0: On the second point, it's, it would be hard for him to wreak any more havoc than already exists, right? Like, I think that we've hit possibly, we're nearing peak entropy, followed by the heat death of the universe, presumably. (laughs) I mean, he's going to like occupy a couple of news cycles. He's going to be hilarious. But as to the first question of whether he's really running, I think the answer is no. I mean, he's a performance artist. He's like a gift to journalists. He is an utterly profoundly ridiculous Human being. And I think that, you know, half of me thinks that he is like running for PR for his other side projects and running to tell us how much money he has. What's especially hilarious is it looks like he actually kind of like inflated his net worth. Oh, yes. (laughs) And putting these numbers out there like hugely. Anyway, I'm tickled
1: by the whole thing. I am decidedly tickled, Mike. What do you think he can do? to the grand old party in the interim between officially filing with the FEC (laughs) in January and now.
2: My friend Harry Enten who writes for 538 makes a couple of good points. One is he's the most hated person ever to run for the presidency. He polls worse <laughs> than Chris Christie's not doing so well either, but in terms of the negative scores, polls worse than Pat Robertson, polls worse than Al Sharpton. Just just has zero chance of having an impact. Now what do we mean by an impact? Harry even says that he doesn't think he'll eventually be one of the 10 people on the stage. Because when the polls go when, now the polls are based on things like name But once Republicans, self-identified Republicans, really know that their answer will have a consequence, maybe they won't even name, you know, the requisite two or three percent won't even name Donald Trump. And if he is on the stage, he'll say a ridiculous thing. Maybe the only thing that'll do is make, you know, Rick Santorum look plausible.
1: I don't know. Yesterday at his announcement, he shouted out Jeb. I mean, the bombast level with Donald Trump is incredibly high. And he had no compunction about he had no problem saying Jeb Bush struggled with how to answer a question on Iraq for five days. Rubio couldn't even answer it. These people can't lead. And and some part of me thinks because Donald Trump literally has nothing to lose, he'll be completely unafraid of taking those questions to the main stage if he gets on it. The other thing I'd say is, listen, saying that Mexico is sending rapists over our borders on the heels of Jeb Bush speaking Spanish and talking about his Mexican wife for a Republican party that has a major image problem with you know, building a bigger tent and inviting some people of color, specifically Hispanics, into it. It is not good branding to have Donald Trump out there. I mean, if there is such a thing as a swing voter or a Hispanic voter that is not yet convinced about which party would be best for them. Yeah. This dude's not your best ambassador.
2: But like many a meadow in Scotland that eventually became a golf course, the Republican Party did not ask for the Trump name to be attached to it.
1: True story. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Do you think that this will have any practical impact? If it does, it will be on one of these, you know, fourth tier candidates, but maybe even John Kasich. Well, John Kasich is actually
1: like a problem because I don't know, Annie, he is seen as a real establishment alternative, at least in the initial stages of this, which is like as of three days ago, right. as a real a possible establishment alternative to Jeb Bush. He's hired right. Fred Davis and John Weaver, who are no jokes in the political world. And he's going to have to struggle mightily to get to name recognition above a certain threshold to make it on the debate stage by August. Right.
0: I think that there's going to be very, very little effect when it comes down to two, maybe three candidates towards the end. But yeah, these these are exactly the type of small candidates who he could really cause some trouble for. And Kasich, it's worth noting, is... is at least if you look at at him on paper, is he's not a crazy guy, right? No. He's real legitimate. He could be in in kind of another world in which he was a little bit more magnetic and had a higher profile, a pretty solid contender. But he might be the sort of guy that the that, that Donald just sucks up all of the oxygen and and doesn't let on the stage for it. And you know, these uh, debates have become just this tremendous issue for a Republican Party that really wanted this to not be this, not to be a circus. It's literally like the party did the opposite. It's like, well, what was
1: that you said, Reince Priebus? You want this to be focused? You want us to focus on winners? (laughs) How about we get you 37 clowns? Right.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't know, but all that really matters, sure, it'll be entertaining along the way, but all that really matters is them picking the strongest candidate for the general election. And I don't think that the wackadoo nature of the Trump candidacy or 10 candidates on the stage or anything else that might go on, you can't convince me that that hurts the ultimate goal. Like it'll either be Walker, Jeb, Rubio or other. And I think whoever emerges from the process will have emerged from a process maybe that we didn't envision, but a fair enough crucible. Right.
0: And I agree with you that at some point I think it's it's going to come down to two or three of those guys and it's going to be probably fairly hard fought. And the question is how much the debates and all of this other stuff like interrupt that winnowing down to two or three. I go back and forth on whether I think that the sideshow will become the main show and whether this will be actually problematic. I'll just say
1: Donald Trump is a giant glitter bomb. On <laughs> stage, if he makes it there. I yeah,
0: think- nine showers and ten times <laughs> I th- through I think the of, wash I th- to get that off.
2: I think of him as the backwards walking god of Hopi legend who speaks <laughs> truth through a weird, mystical. Hopi, H
1: O P I, not to be confused with H O P E Y.
2: Yes. Okay. Well, and okay. So okay. earlier,
0: Alex and I were talking about how one way that his candidacy could come to a, a terrible end here would be if NBC forces him to choose between the presidency and. And The huh. Apprentice. Sophie's choice for Donald Trump. Very self difficult.
1: Self-aggrandizing aggr- presidential yeah. campaign or self-aggrandizing media <laughs> franchise.
2: Which do you choose? Well, speaking of NBC and something that came up in the front of the show, which Cosby character is the Donald? Clearly Cockroach.
1: Who is Cockroach?
2: He was Malcolm Jamal Warner's you friend go- Cockroach. Were you Googling this no! the whole time? Oh, you were. I remember Cockroach. That's
1: the multitasking Mike Pesca. I was Googling. <laughs> like single-tasking Mark Leibovitch. He was just so slow you could catch him.
0: <laughs> okay, we're going to end it there. Tweet us at Pod for America. This episode of Podcast for America is brought to you by The Great Courses. The desire to learn doesn't stop after college. The Great Courses offers engaging video and audio lectures from top professors and experts in their fields. Recently, I watched their lecture series, The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Presented by award-winning professor Mark Stoller, this series filters through the myths and misconceptions about America's past to offer new perspectives on pivotal events. It's a great thing to watch or to listen to if you're somebody who's a bit of a history buff but hasn't really studied since college and wants to be updated. The Great Courses, celebrating their 25th anniversary, has over 500 courses on topics like history, science, photography, and more. Watch or listen with online downloads and streaming via The Great Courses apps or on DVDs or CDs. The Great Courses created a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including A Skeptic's Guide to American History, at up to 80% off the original price. But hurry! this 80% savings is only available for a limited time. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash america. That's thegreatcourses.com slash America.
1: Okay, and now it is time for our lightning round highly divisive, headline grabbing. If I were in charge, Mike?
2: Well, if I were in charge, I would take the protesters who interrupted Jeb Bush's statement, who wore shirts spelling out the following slogan, legal status is not enough. I'd take them all and I'd rearrange them and I'd inject them into other political rallies. For instance, I would have them go to a Mike Huckabee rally. Now, remember, Mike Huckabee wrote a book called Digging Your Grave with a Knife and Fork, but he's since put on quite a bit of weight. So legal status is not enough rearranges to speak bell a stale glutton is enough so i think that that would work for mike huckabee (laughs)
1: oh my god you are so prepared that's like the best if i were
2: in charge that's ever been ordered i got about five more for uh jeb himself A lightning round dude it could be it could be a rearrange to a genealogist hunts louts which which wow this is so much
1: brain work
2: also huckabee could be gout a naughtiness toll (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's amazing.
2: And for any number of candidates who've uh, appeared on this public stage—Herman Cain, Spitzer, Wiener, engage a not sluttish soul could be. There what, you go. What they My rearrange
1: F T W Annie,
2: which rearranges. To I'm not going to try. And, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, that, thank yeah. you for that.
0: He's so good. Wait for So if I were in charge, yes. like once every 10 elections, I think it would just be a requirement that every American in public life run for election. And and that way we could see who credulously actually runs and who merely needed the nudge to go. That's a good. That's
1: actually a good idea. Like Israeli defense service. You have to run for office. <laughs> exactly. National service. Can I just
2: sew parachutes? <laughs> quietly yeah, exactly get out of
1: it <laughs> um if i were in charge because i think the republican field needs one more candidate i would draft the pope because theoretically his ideas about oh the environment and income inequality would find a place in on the democratic ticket but i think he'd be far more far more interesting on the republican ticket and his positions in the vatican <laughs> and the catholic church's positions on reproductive rights dovetail more with the current republican party but just imagine the pontiff on stage Talking to Rick Santorum about what real Catholics believe. But where was he born, Alex? Yes, exactly. Where <laughs> was yeah. he born? He was also, born in Canada to Cuban. Oh, wait a second. But wait, didn't Dukakis
2: <laughs> teach us you can't wear a funny hat and get elected?
1: That's so true. <laughs> That's so true. We are going to leave it there, my friends. That is Podcast for America. Our producer is Sarah Abdurahman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please do let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Pod4America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and the internet. And subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover this magical little show. For Annie Lowry and Mike Pesca, and I guess Mark Leibovich, I'm Alex Wagner in New York. We'll talk to you next time, and thanks for listening.